And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? That didn't sound too uh, encouraging there. I was asking if you were doing well. I just kind of just mumbled like, oh my goodness sakes, I'm barely surviving. What am I going to do? Here we go. You guys ready for this? Okay, that sounds better. How are you guys doing? That's even better. That's even better. Some of you were faking it, though, weren't you? Just to, just to appease me. Hey, thank God for air conditioning. Praise God. How about deodorant? Praise God. Especially for those sitting around you right now. Praise God. How about iced mochas? Yeah. Hey, good to have you with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, certainly in a world of doubt. Luke chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 37. And uh, also grab your sermon notes out. And as you're grabbing your sermon notes out, look up here. You need to look up here. You are more flawed than you think. Welcome to Desert Breeze. I've been waiting all week to say that. Yes, you are more messed up than you think. And yet, also look on your notes, and the world is more fallen than most want to admit. But check this out, I love it, but God's grace is greater than we deserve or could ever dream. Is that great? That's good news. Praise God, praise God for that. Oh, by the way, to the degree that you're in touch with your, your fallenness and brokenness and sinfulness and the brokenness of this world is to the degree that his grace will overwhelm you. You will be head over heels in love with, with God's amazing grace. In fact, the next, next uh, sentence on your notes there, part of the intro, we celebrate the intoxicating joy of God's irresistible grace. I mean, I, I didn't know of any other words to put there, but it's intoxicating joy of God's irresistible grace. Most fully, when we grieve our sin and the brokenness of this world most deeply. That's a heavy theological thought. You need the balance of both. If you're not stoked over God's grace, you're totally out of touch with reality. And the reality is your sinfulness and the brokenness of this world, because believe me, the more you're in touch with that and then you begin to get glimpses of God's grace, his favor in our life that is more than we deserve, greater than we ever dreamed, oh my goodness, it will light you up. It will transform your life. But you gotta have the combination of both. And that's what we're gonna talk about here. We're gonna, uh, we're gonna look at the story of the Good Samaritan. How many have ever heard the story of the Good Samaritan? Good Samaritan? Yep, uh, hospitals have been named after it, social justice organizations, even laws are based on this story. I was born in Good Sam Hospital here in Phoenix just a little over 40 years ago. <laughs> you guys didn't have to laugh so hard. That wasn't a joke. Okay, how about, how about 50 years ago, a little over 50 years ago? You guys aren't buying that? How about 60 years ago? What? That hurts. Where's security? Where's the security? This man right here. Usher him out of here. Do you know what the word excommunication? I'm kidding. You guys are way too much fun. But uh, Good Sam Hospital, why couldn't my 
parents had me born in a hospital in San Diego or someplace where it's cooler than this, huh? That's what I'm thinking. No, I, I, I love it here. This is a good place. But uh, here's what I want you to understand is that the story of the Good Samaritan is not primarily a story is not primarily a story of how to be kind to strangers or how to love your enemies or how to meet the needs of the abused, the broken, and the abandoned that is social justice. It's not primarily a story about that. Though you've probably heard a lot of messages that would proclaim that, but it's not primarily about that. It's secondarily about that. It's primarily a story that is meant to show us that the law of God, what the law of God requires, and how we fall short of that, and how desperate we are of God's grace. That's primarily the whole point of the story, and you're gonna see that. Now, we're gonna talk about social justice, we're gonna talk about, uh, we're gonna talk about how to meet the needs of the abused, the broken, the abandoned, and, and all of that, but that's secondary. The primary study is, here's God's standards, all of us fall short of that, Oh my goodness, we are desperate for God's grace. That's where we're headed with the study here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me before we uh, read our text, unpack these notes? Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We love you because you first loved us. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. 1 John 1.8 says that if we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Psalm 36.2 says that the wicked flatters himself in his own eyes so that his sin cannot be found out and hated. So we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would reveal our sins to us as we remember that your Holy Spirit convicts us not to shame us, but to lovingly draw us to greater levels of freedom and satisfaction in you. Teach us how to grieve our sin and the brokenness of this world more deeply so that we can celebrate the intoxicating joy of your irresistible grace more fully. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Probably won't need much commentary, though I will give you a little as we work through it, starting in uh, verse 25, chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He's putting Jesus to the test. So, so he's gonna ask Jesus a question, and, and he says, Jesus, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Just stop there just for a moment. That's fundamentally, that's the fundamental question of life. What's the purpose of life? Why am I here? How can I get the most out of life? Where am I headed? Uh, so it, it, it's basically asking the question of origin, purpose, and destiny. Uh, how can I have this eternal life? And you'll also notice he's here to test him because uh, most of these religious uh, people in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts, uh, really questioned Jesus' uh, respect of the law. They thought he was a little weak with the law because he, he was a friend of sinners. He's hanging out. Look who he hangs out with. So he can't take the law very seriously. So this guy is testing him with a question. By the way, keep in mind also that doubt will ask honest questions, unbelief refuses to hear the answers. So he's not, he doesn't have doubt, he's got unbelief. He's got pride, pride is this based on unbelief uh, that refuses to hear any answers, and he's trying to make a point, 
So he's testing Jesus to where doubt is more based on humility. I really want to learn. And that's not his attitude whatsoever. So he's got a bit of an attitude here, but oh my goodness, I love our Savior because he's going to decimate this guy with, with such tender words. And, um, and so he says, well, how can I inherit eternal life? And, and he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, that is Jesus, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? So, so that's us, that's all of us. We all try to justify ourselves. We try to, we've got to somehow boost ourselves up, make ourselves look bigger, better, prettier, whatever, than, than what we really are. So we, we seek to justify ourselves. And the reason why we do that is because we fail to, as believers, rest in the reality of what it tells us in Romans, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have everything we need in Jesus. And if we understand that, we can rest in that, and then we can, we can be open and honest about our shortcomings, confess those and work through those, and, and become healthier people. But be, because we don't, we're constantly trying to justify ourselves, and we do that primarily because we compare ourselves with one another. And that's what ultimately he's trying to do. He says, well, well okay, so then who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, and he totally just lowers the boom on this guy. He tells this story that's just beyond, it's a standard beyond... <clears throat> Anybody, especially this guy. And, uh, and so he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So priest, this is a religious leader, very highly... Uh, you know, a man in that culture that was highly esteemed. But notice this guy sees this guy, and he goes to the other side. He goes, oh, I'm not going over there. I'm not going to get close to him. I don't want to be responsible. I'm going to, go to the, I'm going to go down the other side of the street. Kind of what you do when you go to Fry's over here, and the Girl Scouts are out there selling cookies <laughs> at one of the doors, and so you go to the other door. You guys do that? How many do that? Show of hands. Confess. Confess. Yeah, you know you do. How could you do that? I do it too. I got too many Girl Scout cookies. I don't need another Girl Scout cookie. I already bought 10 boxes of those, okay, from a relative that forced it down me, my throat. Okay, so, but anyway, that's kind of what we do. We do that. We just kind of avoid people. It's like, oh, that's a problem. I'm going to go over here. That's what he's doing. And he's a religious leader. You'd expect something better. And, uh, and then it says, verse 32, likewise, a Levite. So there's, these are two leaders within the Jewish faith, um, highly esteemed. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. Now, many commentators would say that this guy that's been beaten up is someone who's also a Jew. So you've got two religious Jews that just go to the other side of the street. But check this out, verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were hated and despised by the Jews, Jews, the Samaritans vice versa, and the Jews thought that the Samaritans were uh, polluted uh, not just as a race because they had intermarried with their uh, enemies, but they were also polluted religiously and spiritually in how they worshiped. 
So they despised each other. And here's a Samaritan, and as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. By the way, that word compassion is the one word that describes our Savior more than any other word in the gospel accounts. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. We have a Savior, we have a Creator, we have a God, the God of the galaxies, came to this earth and had compassion towards us. Compassion is a word, it's a, it's a gut punch word, boom. It's what you feel when you get that dreaded phone call or you hear about a loved one that's struggling or you, you see someone that's in desperate need and it's just it rips your heart out. It's at that level, hits you right in the gut. That's that idea. He had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, which is pretty much two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord to us. Now, that should have wiped him out, should have devastated him. And, and when you really begin to understand God's standard, it will wipe you out too, or you're out of touch with reality and you didn't read it. In fact, uh, take a look at this first. So what does the law of God require? And in verse 27, love, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what he's doing there, and that's the summary of the Ten Commandments. The first four are represented in that first one, love God with all your heart. Those are the first four commandments. The next six are represented in the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, you need to get this. You need to understand this. We don't love God and love our neighbor first. First and foremost, he loves us. He loves us, and therefore we love him back, okay? So his love is preemptive. It's always first. It always comes first. So this is only responsive love. We're responding back to God, and that's important to always keep in mind. We love him because, because he first loved us. Notice Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Verse 29, and the lawyer wanting to justify himself asked, well, who is my neighbor? Because the premise of his life was God will accept me if I'm virtuous enough, and quite frankly, I'm pretty doggone virtuous, even if I have to boast myself. That's really his attitude. It's pride. Came across a story a number of years ago, a story of two notorious and wicked brothers who terrorized a small Midwestern town. When one of the brothers unexpectedly died, it became the responsibility of the other to make funeral arrangements. He could not find a pastor anywhere in, in the county who would agree to do the funeral. And it was not because the pastors lacked the compassion, but because of the unusual request made by the surviving brother. He wanted the pastor to say of the deceased that he was a saint. That he was a saint. And of course, no pastor would do anything so dishonest. In desperation, the brother went around and offered $1,000 to any pastor who could say the words that he is a saint, or that he was a saint. One pastor finally agreed to do so. He was a prominent pastor of a prestigious church. His agreement on this sent a shockwave through the county. People came to the funeral, not because they cared anything about the dead guy. They wanted to see if this pastor was going to truly compromise himself. 
So the pastor stood at the pulpit, delivered the epitaph without even a stutter. And he said, we all know that Charlie here was a wicked man. He was, he was foul, twisted, perverse, and full of the devil. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> Give me my thousand dollars. Yes. So we all have a perverse tendency to overrate ourselves when we compare ourselves with each other. We all do that. That's why I like hanging out with some of you. You make me feel really good about myself. Actually, some of you probably like hanging out with me, don't you? It's like, man, I like, he's a pastor too. He's messed up. You are too. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I think that's probably why reality TV became so popular over the last couple decades. I mean, it's just like one train wreck after another. And you can watch it and you go, those people are jacked up. Those people are screwed up. And boy, I'm not that screwed up. Well, yeah, but you are screwed up, okay. And you are, we all are. That's the reason why I started the message by saying we're all more sinful than what we even think. We're more messed up than what we, we even think we are because there's, there's that tendency to compare ourselves. We try to justify ourselves. That's, that's part of our sinful nature. We just, we do that. We do that. And so when we begin to come to terms with the reality of the fact that, no, no, we're, we're pretty messed up. In fact, it's not until we begin to really look seriously at God's word and what his law requires. So what does the law of God require? Let me, let me lay these out here for you. Here's the first one. Love God with all of your heart. Verse 27a. This is what it means. Let God dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotion, and move you to action. That would be my summary statement of that. So let God dominate your thoughts. That's who should dominate your thoughts. If God is the God the Bible portrays, then he would and should dominate our thoughts. He should stir our deepest emotion. I should be more excited about God than anything else, than a, than a promotion, than more money in the bank, than a new car, than, than anything. And not only that, he should be the one that moves me to action. It's, I want to live for his glory. Matthew 6.21 says that uh, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Well, think about that. So the things that you treasure in life, so it seems to me that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength would be that you would treasure him. That's where you find your greatest pleasure. And so that would dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotions, and move you to action. There's a quote that I came across a number of years ago that, <laughs> that leveled me because the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I was pretty messed up. It was from Bishop William Temple, and this is what he said. What you do in your solitude is your true religion. What you do in your solitude is your true religion. And as I begin to reflect on it, I begin to realize what I do in my solitude is I worry. And I think about work and, and my responsibilities and what people said to me and how I responded and people-pleasing and workaholism and all of these things. And I re realize those are the things that dominate my thoughts and stir my deepest emotion and move me to action. I like the way Tim, uh, Timothy Keller puts it. He says, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. That in itself will level you. You'll realize, wait a minute, I don't love God with all my heart and soul, mind, strength. I don't love him. He doesn't dominate my thoughts. So, so many other things that dominate my thoughts. Do you love God so much that he dominates your solitude? 
Where does your mind love to dwell? Does it instinctively and naturally dwell on God, his attributes, his beauty, his glory? If God is who the Bible says he is, oh my goodness, that would, where our, that would be where our thoughts would go. He would stir our deepest emotions, spending time with him, knowing him, walking with him, experiencing him, that would be it. And yet none of us really do that. See, anything that absorbs your heart in imagination more than God is an idol. So fortunately, through that, I begin to identify, and I've been able to identify my idols in my life. And you will too. You'll be able to see, hey, these are the things that are competing for my heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from God. And so if indeed you are loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, uh, then, then you ought to be able to echo these words, Psalm 63.3, his steadfast love is better than life. What does that mean? Well, this is what it means. It means that, that there's no marriage relationship, there's no new car, more money, job promotion. I mean, look in your heart. Just take a moment and look in your heart. What are those things that you're thinking, man, if I had that, if I achieved that, if I accomplished that, if I acquired that, oh my goodness, that would be so great. Those things that you daydream about. And yet, if you really loved God with all of your heart, his steadfast love would be better than all of that. You'd go, yeah, that's good. Nothing wrong with pursuing that. Oh, but he's so much better. His steadfast love, oh my goodness, I've never been more loved. How about this? Psalm 8410, I believe that if you love God with all of your heart, that would be your cry too. Better is one day in your courts than what? Thousands elsewhere. I just love spending time with you. See, if you loved him with all of your, but, but you don't, and neither do I. We, we tend to all struggle with that. That just reveals our sin. See, our, that, that, that betrays us. Our, what, what dominates our solitude shows us what's most important to us. Or how about Psalm 119, 103? His words are sweet to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I love studying his word. I'll turn off a TV show, my favorite TV show, because it doesn't mean anything to me because I would rather spend time with him and interact with him and know him and experience him and have him speak to me. Oh, my goodness, because when he speaks to me, it's sweet to my taste. It's sweeter than honey to my mouth. There's nothing sweeter than, than interacting with God. See, that's someone who loves God with all of their heart. And so loving God with all of your heart, that means... Uh, that when you love God, that you love God so much, that you love God so much that you are content with any circumstance because you always have what you most want, and that's God. And that's God. Are you content in every circumstance? By the way, you should be content even now with every circumstance because you have what you most want if indeed God is what you want most, if you love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but none of us live there. We all struggle with that. It shows that we, we are, as I stated, that we are more flawed than we think because when we really look at God's standards, just that, that one, that great commandment, love God with all of our heart, we don't do that. We fall, we fall short of that. Really, the bottom line is that no one desires God with the passion he demands or deserves but it gets worse because look at the next one. The next one is love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 27b, and this, this is what it means. Meet your neighbor's needs with the same amount of thought, emotion, and action you would meet your own needs without limits to when, who, or how much. 
So love your neighbors yourself. Meet your neighbor's needs with the same amount. Give as much thought, emotion, and action to meeting your neighbor's needs as you would meet your own needs without limits to when, who, or how much. Because that's what we see in the story. That's what Jesus was saying in the story with the Good Samaritan. So what would that look like? Well, this is what it would look like. Let's just say that you and a coworker are are kind of battling here a little bit. You're competing for the same promotion, and believe me, you are desperate for this promotion because you're coming up short every month. You need a little bit more money to make ends meet, and so you're struggling to meet your family's needs. You're desperate. In fact, you've been pouring out your heart to God. God, meet my needs. Please meet our needs, and this promotion is a good opportunity, but guess what? You don't get it, and your coworker gets the promotion. So to love your coworker as much as you love yourself would, to, would be to celebrate his getting the promotion or her getting the promotion like you would celebrate yourself getting that promotion and that raise. Do you do that? I don't think so. I know so. I struggle with that. I'm not saying that I'm better than you. Like somehow, I mean, I'm just saying I'm we all struggle with that. I mean, do you celebrate when someone else? I mean, it'd be like you, you're preparing for the Olympics four years, hard work. You watched your diet. You get the right amount of sleep. You've, you've paid for a special trainer, and you've got, there's three of you all in this one event, and so here comes the Olympics, and, and, you're, and you've beat the other two, I mean, throughout the year. So you're positioned to win the gold medal, maybe even break the record. Guess what? You're fortunate to even finish fourth not even get a medal. And the other two get first and second. The first place winner gets, beats the record, breaks the record. And so for you to love them as you would love yourself is that you would celebrate the one that got the gold and the silver as if it was you getting the gold and the silver and even maybe breaking the record. That's what he's saying. But none of us do that. We don't. We don't do that. So, so what this means is that you are as happy when your neighbor's needs are met as much as, as when your needs are met because you, you put your happiness inside their happiness, inside their well-being. What makes you happy is what makes, what makes them happy without limits to the when, the, the who, and the how much. I know, I know, I know. Some of you are going, wait, 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 what? That's like, that's outrageous. So you mean to tell me I'm, I'm you know, I just be kind to someone that's abusing me? I didn't say that. It's never loving to let someone abuse you or hurt you. That, that's not what it's saying. And I'm, I'm assuming that you would know better that the most loving thing for you to do would say, hey, no, knock it off and get away from that person. That would be loving. Or it wouldn't be loving to enable anybody in their, in their behavior that would be not just destructive towards themselves but also to others. That's not loving. Okay, so we're not, does that make sense? So to look out for someone else's needs and to, and to love someone as much as you love yourself, you're not going to let yourself get abused. You're not gonna, hopefully, you're not going to abuse yourself, though people do, but I'm just saying in, in, a healthy, in a healthy sense, healthy idea here is that you're going to look after their needs with the same amount of thought, emotion, action as you would look after your own needs. That's all it's saying. And you're not going to enable them towards destruction, and nor will you take abuse in any of that. But it's just, there, there's going to be a generosity and a level of generosity towards them that, I, I mean, think about this. Basically, it's the golden rule. You guys know what the golden rule is, doing to others as they would, as you would have them do unto you. Yeah. And can you imagine, can you imagine if, if everybody did that here in America? Now think about that. There would be no need for, 
for policing or prisons or even politics. Praise God! Oh my goodness, does that drive you crazy or what? It would, there would be no need for that because we'd be looking after each other's needs. I would put the same amount of thought and emotion and action into meeting your needs as I would look after my own needs. That's what he's saying. And it's an out, of, out of an overflow of how God meets my needs and loves on me as I love him with all my heart and love my neighbor as myself. And notice I put here too, without, without limits to the win. Yeah, verse 30, Jesus put, put this man on a familiar stretch of road called the Pass of Blood. So this was a dangerous stretch of road. Anybody halfway responsible would avoid this very dangerous road. This was not convenient for the, uh, for the Good Samaritan. In fact, it was a, a risk to his life. But also without limits to the who, verses 31 through 33. It's natural to want to help people who, who are like you, who you like, and they like you. Jesus puts together a Jew and a Samaritan. They despised each other. They're terrible enemies. So your neighbor is anyone you, you come into contact with who lacks the basic resources, even if they are a hated, of a hated race or of another faith, regardless of the causes of their, of their poverty, whether it's injustice or oppression or circumstance, calamity, or personal failure. They're just, they're irresponsible. He's just saying you need to minister to them. Now, immediately... <laughs> I know this. I mean, you guys are going to dog me on this one. You're going to, what about all the, the panhandlers out on the corner? What should we do there, Pastor Ray? How should we help them? That is a great question. That's, that's the question that hits me every time I pass one of them or many of them. They're like on every corner around here. Did you notice that? Now, here's a, here's a couple ideas here. First of all, don't do this. Don't just uh, indiscriminately just pass out money out the window without much thought to kind of ease your guilt because you feel real bad about them and it's 120 out there and they look really pitiful. Don't do that. Don't do that. In fact, their problem is much more complex than a couple bucks out the window. In fact, start thinking about, about how you can help them in more of a holistic way. And so, hey, you know, my mom, my mom does it regularly, and, and she has a little extra money that she will do that with, and I always tell her, Mom, be careful, because you never know. Somebody could hit you over the head and grab your purse or whatever. So she, has, she said that, well, hey, I, I went to get some food. I'm going to take it back to this couple that was standing on the corner. I felt so bad for them. I, Here, give me, give me that. I'll take it. So I've run a few trips for her. But what she typically does is that she does that, and she'll buy them food and then tell them about Jesus, and then also try to help them some way to get off the street and put them in contact with some organization here in town. That would be actually much better because believe it or not, that's pretty lucrative for many of those folks that are out there. And if you continue to give them bucks out the window, some of them are not, not gonna ever get off the street. And so there's actually better ways of dealing with that and there's agencies here in town that are actually trying to help them out. By the way, we're one of those. You give to our, yeah, praise God. You give to one of the, uh, you give to our benevolence fund, we help folks all the time right here. Families that are wanting and they're struggling and they're trying to get, make ends meet and they don't know what to do, they don't know where to go. So you give, give your money to our benevolence fund and we try to help that. There's other great agencies here in town. But don't do it just out of guilt. We're gonna talk about the right motive, but it's, it's more complex 
And there's a more of a holistic kind of approach to all of this that we need to be more aware of. Here's the next one, without limits to how much, verses 34 through 35. He bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine, took him to an inn, covered all the cost. I love what C.S. Lewis says. It's pretty convicting, though. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid that, that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Timothy Keller puts it this way. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditures exclude them. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you are responding to this irresistible grace of God, he's poured his grace into your life, you're gonna love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not perfectly, but that's what you're, you're shooting for because you wanna honor him. But you're gonna love your neighbor as yourself and that's gonna come in the way of, of generosity of, of meeting needs around you and, and loving people around you. And I, I, my parents taught me this. My wife and I have practiced this our whole life. That involves tithes, offerings, and alms. Tithes would be 10%. You, you, and you give that to your local church family. You support them. And then offerings over and above that, that could be within the church family or beyond that. I know many of you do that. And then the alms would be towards the poor. You got someone in your small group that's struggling, you're able to have that extra money and you give it to them or whatever it might be. Or maybe be discerning, by the way. There will be times that God will say, hey, I want you to help this person that's out on the street and give to them. And, and there might be some kind of divine reason for that, but you've got to be discerning. Do not. We don't do that here. We don't give out man, money indiscriminately, but be discerning in what you're doing. Be wise with what God has given you and, and, and do that. But generosity should be a part of your life indeed if you understand this. And uh, if you're not burdened by your giving, then you're probably not giving enough. In other words, there should be things that you're not doing or places you're not going because you're using that to minister to folks and to help people out. That would be normal Christianity. See, Christians love generously because they have been generously loved. We've been generously loved. Oh my goodness, our Savior bled and died for us. He gave his all to us, and so we want to respond by giving our lives to him. Look what it says in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. You don't need to turn there. Let me just summarize it here. On final judgment day, God will separate the sheep from the goats. So basically, when Jesus gives us these stories, he's just saying, hey, everybody could be categorized in one of those two categories. You're either going to be sheep or you're going to be a goat. And, and he says, how does he separate the sheep from the goat? Well, this is what he says. He says, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When were, when were you hungry? When you failed to do it to the least of these, you failed to do it to me. So what he's saying is like, you didn't give a rip about the poor. You didn't reach out in any way. You weren't generous at all. So it was evident that you didn't know me and you weren't justified by, by me. That's what he's saying. See, this is symptomatic of a much deeper issue. And that's what he's saying there when it comes to judgment day. See, let me, let me kind of summarize this and we'll move on to the next uh, point on the notes. But every time we, we, we love anything more than God, we worry too much, we are less than honest, we treat people too harshly, we make cutting remarks we shouldn't, we fail to speak the truth in love, gossip or tell an off-color joke or have sexually impure thoughts. This is just a short list here. Each act adds to a mountain of moral debt we owe God giving proof of our fallen nature. And as a pastor, I have devoted my life to spiritual growth. Yet, it took me only 30 seconds to come up with that list of sins. Want to know why? 
because my wife has done every one of those. Okay, I'm, I'm joking. That's actually my list, okay? My list is longer than her list, but I do have a list of her sins. And guess what? You have a list. If you haven't looked lately, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So Romans 3.23, 1 John 1.8 is very clear about that. In fact, look at the next point in your notes. You will not be humble enough to receive the grace God offers you until you are devastated by the grace God requires of you. Another heavy theological point. We are in a day and time here in America where people don't want to talk about sin. You can find a church, there's plenty of churches in the valley, you're not going to hear much about sin. They're not going to confront you over sin. Oh, we don't want to say that. I mean, most churches would have never even said what I said at the very beginning. You are more flawed than you think. Welcome to Desert Breeze. I mean, we don't even want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about sin. There's too much. Too much. Listen, if you're not coming to terms with your own sinfulness and the fallenness of this world, grace is going to be meaningless to you. But to the degree that you understand that is to the degree you're going to go through the ceiling over God's grace. See, if you're, not, if you're not all pepped up about God's grace, it's because you're out of touch with the reality of your life. I'll tell you what, and, and you probably haven't been reading the Bible very much lately, because when I read the Bible, I look into the full-length mirror of God's Word, I don't look so good. Oh, but my goodness, does it help me to appreciate God's grace and I realize that his favor in my life is beyond what I deserve, more than I ever dreamed. Yes, I love it. What is the purpose of God's law? Verse 28, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So he answered the question, love God, love people. And here's what you need to keep in mind. The law is the way of life, not the way to life. Did you hear Jesus' answer? You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. See, they thought that Jesus was light on the law, kind of weak on the law. But Jesus isn't. He said, no, this is a good way to live. So the law is the way of life, but not the way to life. You should live, live that way, but you're, you'll never be saved that way. You'll never be saved that way, but that's a good way to live. That's what he's saying. See, when you understand and embrace God's outrageous love for you, of course you're going to love God with all of your heart and your neighbors yourself. Only someone who has never encountered God or not living in the reality of his love would do otherwise. So, okay, what is the purpose of God's law? That we may know the holy nature of God. That's the, the next on your fill in the blanks there. The holy nature of God, Romans 7, 12. The law is holy, righteous, and good. That's Romans 7, 12. 1 Peter 1, 15 he who has called you is holy, you also be holy. Here's the second reason for the law, is that we may know our sinful nature and need a savior. So that we might know our, our sinful nature and need a savior, Romans 3.20, for by, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You guys tracking with me? You guys still with me? Okay. Here's the third reason. That we may know how to live a life worthy of our Savior. In fact, on your notes, I want you to cross out. Uh, I've got Psalm 19, verses 11 and 12. Put 7 to 11 there. You can even put 12, 7 to 12 if you want. 
But, but listen to what it says about God's law. The law of the Lord revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, more to be desired than gold, sweeter than honey, warns us and rewards us, but it can't save us. It can't save us. It has phenomenal benefits to our lives, but it's not going to save us. In fact, you need to know the difference between these three things. It's on your notes. Legalism, antinomianism, and the gospel. Most Christians do not know the difference and don't know that they're, they're maybe attending a church or listening to a, a, a spiritual leader that's leading them either towards legalism or antinomianism. Legalism is I obey, therefore God accepts me. That was this guy's heart. That was Phariseeism. That was the whole religious system of that day. Oh, I got to get my act together, and then God will bless me. I better start going to church so that my marriage will start working out better. Why? That's the wrong reason. That's works righteousness. Don't you even know what he's already done for you? So that's called legalism. That's called legalism. You're trying to earn favor with God. You have his favor through Jesus Christ. My goodness sakes but you've lost track of the gospel. Here's the next one is antinomianism. We tend to swing to these extremes. We either go legalism, we pound people, tell them you better get your act together, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, or we don't even talk about sin at all. It's just all about God's grace. Isn't everything so wonderful? And, and another, other words for that would be license or liberalism or cheap grace. You can turn on TV, Christian TV, turn on Christian radio, and you're going to hear a load of that, cheap grace. It will not transform your life. It's not going to transform your life. But I'll tell you what, when you begin to study God's word and he reveals to you your idols of your heart, your appreciation for God's grace will go through the roof and that's what begins to transform your life. You begin to cling to him unlike you've ever clinged to him before. You begin to need him more than you've ever needed him before. And finally, for the first time, you're in touch with reality. Had a guy come up to me last night and he just came up with tears. He says, I'm such a disappointment. What do you say? I said, yeah. <laughs> and I am too. And yet we've got God's grace. I had, uh, Pastor Scott told me the story of R.C. Sproul had somebody come up to him after a message and the woman said, I feel this big, you make me feel this big. And R.C. Sproul, Sproul looked at her and said, that's too big. <laughs> See, and I think that we, we want to boost ourselves. It's all about our self-esteem, and we all want to feel better. Listen, nothing will make you feel better than to be in touch with the reality of your fallenness and how he redeems you. Listen, there's no sin or suffering that is a match for God's redeeming, restoring grace, and you will run into his arms. He's our solution, but you won't look to him as your solution. You're going to put him on the shelf. You're going to do your own thing. You're going to try to keep your life together, and for a season, you'll do fine. But when things start crashing in your life, you're going to realize, I could keep it together for a little while, but man, I'm a mess. Yes, you are. You always have been. You're just out of touch with reality. It's not until you hit suffering. Suffering has a way of putting us in touch with reality. Oh my goodness, I'm so desperate for Jesus. Yes, you are. I'm so glad you came to terms with the reality of your life. Finally, run into his arms. Run. He's our solution. He's our savior. He's the one that gives us all that we need. That we live in a culture today, it's just, it's absolutely crazy. So legalism, 
Well, I went off on that one just a tad, okay. So, yeah, so legalism, I obey, therefore God accepts me. Antinomianism, God accepts me, therefore I don't have to obey. But gospel is God accepts me, therefore I want to obey. That's why I love what John Newton uh, said who wrote Amazing Grace, another, another hymn that he wrote. He says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. See, our, our pleasure and our duty become one and the same. Oh, my goodness, after all he's done for me, of course I'm gonna honor him. Of course I wanna live for him. Do I do it perfectly? I fall short. But oh, my goodness, it is a blast wanting to honor him and live for his glory. Well, what do you do when you fail? Well, we do that every day, pretty much, if you really were honest with yourself. So you confess your sins. You do the First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the way, that was written to believers. As we walk in the light, as he is in the light, because it's gonna expose our darkness. Oh my goodness, but there's such cleansing. <laughs> and you're not living in, in, in denial anymore. And then you can confess. When you struggle in a marriage, I've, I had a couple last night come over and say, hey, we're struggling in our marriage relationship. Yeah, cool, let's pray. God's grace is sufficient. You're open and honest about those things. You're not trying to hide because it's not based on your righteousness. It's based on his righteousness. He's accomplished everything that you need, and it's through the cross. So, by the way, that's Romans 5.1. I already mentioned it, but uh, therefore, since, therefore, since we are justified by faith, uh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, do you, do you understand what that means? Oh, my goodness. Do you understand? You have peace with God. You have access into the throne room of God. When he died on the cross, that place called the Holy of Holies, that curtain that separated us from God was ripped from top to bottom, and you have access into the throne room of God. Listen to me. You're only as close to God as you want to be. Did you know that? Nothing's holding you back from God and knowing him. The bridge across the chasm that separated us from him has been built. It's through Jesus Christ. We can have him, we can know him, we can walk with him. And when we do, oh my goodness, we can honor him. We can bring glory to his name. Okay, so here's the difference between real faith and said faith. Real faith really it lives a life poured out in loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. And, and by the way, let me just say, I need to say this, I need to go through this, I'm gonna do it quickly, but there are no shortage of opportunities here at Desert Breeze. You guys are amazingly generous. We don't even pass a plate here. We've not done that in 26 years. And I, and I really believe that you guys, because your heart, in your heart you have encountered the living Lord and Savior God of the galaxies, and he's transformed your life, and it's evident through your generosity. But let me just show you some of the things that are happening here, here through Desert Breeze. It's, it tells us in Psalm 41.1, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. And I'm so thankful for how blessed we are as a church. Here are just some of the missions and outreach opportunities. By the way, all profits for Desert, uh, Desert Breeze Cafe, all the profits, those are all volunteers in there, by the way. And all of our profits go towards missions. So drink up, drop a few bucks in there. By the way, is this, would this be bad if when you come in and you're bringing a cup from Starbucks or from a local service station here, if I said something like this to you, orphans are starving because of you. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 that's, that's guilt, isn't it? I'm not gonna do that. I'm just kidding. I do that, though. I do that just all in fun. 
But when you give, that's what's happening. You're helping to, to feed folks and love folks and bring the gospel to folks. And so that's all part of that. But uh, I love what we, as we support Nate and Michelle Patrick through crew, we've also got Chuck and Tammy McDonald. They were here last night. They were sitting right back there. Nancy and I sat down with them and had coffee with them. If you hear some of their stories of what's going on in Tala, Kenya, with Chuck and Tammy McDonald, I mean, they've really sacrificed tremendously, and yet they will share with you stories that, are, that almost sound like they're right out of the book of Acts. It's unbelievable what God has done in their lives, feeding, feeding the elderly, helping the homeless children, supporting churches in that area, HIV and AIDS victims, uh, various medical missions, and then, of course, uh, South Asia, sending missionary Rachel Hansen to unreached Muslim people group in northern India. Here's in Rachel's own words. We are taking the church to where it is not, being the presence of the fragrance of Christ among those who have never heard of Jesus Christ. And of course, then we've got our Mexico trip. Many of you went and building, our building project, orphanage, food and clothing drive, and then the uh, Dale and Teresa Kroll. Man, I love what they're doing through Global Training Network and their right to life and the gospel efforts. They were sitting right here in the first service this morning. Babel, baby bottle drive through Choice, which was formerly known as Crisis Pregnancy Center. Uh, water drive for Phoenix Rescue Mission. We just finished that up. We have those that go down to Phoenix Rescue Mission regularly. Food pantry, that's a, that's a new project we've got going on. Paint-a-thon and work project with homes. Many of you have helped out with that. Backpack, school supplies. Right here with schools in the neighborhood, right in this neighborhood. Thanksgiving drive also with families in the neighborhood and also within our church, Angel Tree, Life Group Outreach. Our life groups do, uh, do all sorts of community service projects, card ministry. We help out uh, Solutions International Church here in town, African Refugee Church. And then, of course, I mean, there's just tons of stuff. This is part of your hand out there, different ways where you can get involved. Let me tell you something. If you didn't see that video of our VBS this last week, oh my goodness, I came in here and watched those kids. I watched those kids sing to Jesus and I watched 40 volunteers pour Jesus into those kids. That's those kids' only hope. They need Jesus. We've, we are facing a crisis in our culture and people need the gospel. And that's what we're doing here through Desert Breeze. And when I saw those 100 plus kids, oh my goodness, I love what God's doing here. I'm so sorry. I get so choked up. This does not get old for me. Oh, I love what God's doing in our lives and through our lives. It's absolutely amazing. Keep up the good work. Praise God. Yeah. So, so what's the appropriate reason? What, what should motivate this? What should motivate this? Verses 36 through 37. Verse 36, this is our text. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man responded, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, there's two different reasons why you could get involved. The, one, the first one is the wrong reason. The second one is the right reason. first one is guilt. The right reason is grace. So this is what guilt is. Fill in the blank there for that and look up here because you gotta get this. You gotta become more discerning. I just went to a big ministry. There were tens of thousands of people went to this 
I'm not talking about the recent harvest. I'm talking about another, because I don't want you to confuse that. But I, but I went to another big ministry, and they dogged us. I mean, it was a slick presentation, but it was more guilt-motivated. That is not uncommon in our culture today. Turn on TV. Listen to some of what they do as they pound away. And you need to be more discerning and say, hey, wait, 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 wait. That's more guilt. That's more fear and pride motivated. See, this is what, uh, what pride is all about. So guilt is have to, willpower, pride. Basically, part of guilt says, if you're a decent person, you would help. That's pride. That's pride. All you're doing is harnessing their selfish, sinful nature and getting that so that they can give. Uh, the fear would be God commands you to help. You better. God's going to get you. See, guilt manifested through fear or pride. Pride and fear can restrain the heart, but it won't change the heart. Only grace can do that. Only God's grace. Here's the next one. Grace. Want to God's power. This is what it looks like. Meet people's needs around you with such cost and sacrifice that people will need to hear the gospel just to make sense out of your irresistible grace. And why would you do that? Here's the last final statement. I'm going to make the statement, and then we're going to spend just an extra 30 seconds in prayer because I want us to kind of reflect on this idea. Listen to it. It's only when we become recipients of the irresistible grace of the great Samaritan Jesus to whom the good Samaritan ultimately points to. All the Bible's about Jesus, by the way. So the good Samaritan points to the great Samaritan Jesus and when we become recipients of his irresistible grace is when we become dispensers of that irresistible grace. Don't beat yourself up. Just come back to his irresistible grace. And then out of that, your life will be not a reservoir, but a river of his irresistible grace. Let's pray. So, Father God, just as the good Samaritan was moved with compassion for the man who had fallen among robbers, your son Jesus came to our place in the road and had compassion on us because we had fallen among the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, John 10.10. 10. And this word compassion in verse 33 that describes the good Samaritan describes the great Samaritan Jesus. It's used to describe Jesus more than any other word in the Gospels. Thank you, Jesus, for your compassion. And just as the good Samaritan risked his life to help the man, Jesus didn't just risk his life. He gave his life for us. John 10, 11 says that the great shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. And just as the good Samaritan set the man on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him, Jesus set us up in his place of righteousness and took our place on the cross, bearing our sin, taking care of us for all eternity. As it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And just as the good Samaritan spared no expense paying two days of wages and promised whatever else it might cost to take care of this man, Jesus' payment for our sins on the cross was indispensable and infinitely and eternally costly. As it tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. And so may your grace, as it tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, may your grace abound to us so that in all things, at all times, having all that we need, we will abound in every good work for your glory and our intoxicating joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.